This is Bonjour Chai, the It's Not Easy Being Blue and White Either edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Melissa Lantzman in Toronto and Alana Zakon in Vancouver. We are your frozen chosen. On today's episode, we will discuss a provocative essay by Natan Sharansky and Gil Troy, and we will have a conversation with Pierre Anctil about Jews and Quebec nationalism. How are you guys? What's been happening? It's very hot in Vancouver. It's like East Coast humidity and I'm kind of dying. It's very hard to sleep at night because my building does, my, doesn't have a lot of uh, great air conditioning <laughs> or any at all, really. That's uh, we uh, we complain when it's when it's cold and we complain when it's hot. I'm 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 loving the uh, the newfound freedom that uh, should have never been taken away and for before, but uh, but I'm happy to have some of it back. I hear that uh, you can't get into a store without an hour wait line, basically, at this point in Toronto. Really? Well, you know what? I, st- I stopped going to stores uh, years ago, but this uh, this uh, th- we've got fantastic weather here. It's not super hot, and uh, you know the patios are open, so everybody's happy. So you stop going to stores? You shop online? Is, is that yes. the idea? Yeah, ah. absolutely. Interesting. Stores are for suckers. Uh, you yeah. heard it here first. When I can find a good tailor online How? that will measure and see exactly what's going on, you know, for certain things, you got to be you got to be in person. But uh, yeah, I, I can see where, where you're going with that. How's it going with you in Montreal? Uh, it's it's hot and then it's cold. I feel like I'm in a Katy Perry song. It, it, like it's insane. Like it was 30 degrees at the beginning of the week. And now it's like it, I woke up this morning and it was 11. It, like within a 48 hour span it just we were not sure what to make of it but yes all the terraces are open people are out and about we are in green as of this coming monday we we don't know what to do with this freedom uh we can have people over um yeah it's uh ah, but it's cool it's gonna be a great summer it really looks like it's gonna be a great summer anyways before we get to our first topic let us hear from our sponsor Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom-designed jewelry along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit us online or in person and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. Last week, Tablet Magazine published an essay by Soviet Refusnik and Israeli statesman Natan Sharansky and Canadian historian Gil Troy called The Un-Jews. In it, they called out Jews who seek to cancel Israel and Jewish peoplehood, and they call them by that very title, The Un-Jews. It has since gathered lots of attention online, uh, to which we are about to add to that. Um, What did you guys make of the arguments put out by the authors? You know what? I saw the title and I immediately was like, oh, I don't know what this is going to be about. But I was surprised because I actually kind of agreed with a lot of the points that they brought up. I'm not sure if I love the terminology un-Jews because it feels like we're dividing ourselves, um, which I feel in the Jewish community, that's one thing that I think sets us apart is we do accept Jews of, you know, all different backgrounds, whether it's like a different ethnicity or a different level of religiousness. Um, 
So I don't, I don't, it feels like we're like canceling people within, within the community, which I don't love, but I do have to say that I've encountered a lot of Jews who are a little bit self-hating and I don't think that every person who um, is against Israel necessarily is a self-hating Jew, but there is overlap sometimes. And I do feel sorry for those people um, because it feels like they're ashamed of their Jewishness, which is what I think the article was trying to say of like, you know, we call ourselves Am Yisrael for a reason. Um, and I think it's something that does need to be discussed that uh, there are people who want to distance themselves and uh, fit into the, the larger mass so that they don't get attacked. And I, I think there is some truth in that. What were your feelings? You know what? I, um, I, 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 I read this and then I read it again. Uh, and I can't help um, but to, uh, you know, to fundamentally agree with the, with, with the premise. Now, when I, I'm someone who looks for solutions in, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in every problem that's, uh, and, and we can, we can frame the conversation about what the, what the problem is. Um, but I think the, what the article fundamentally lacks, um, a, what are we going to do about it? Cause there, there's no question that, that's uh, true. uh, that the conflation of it. And, and I, I should say that my, my Jewish identity is very much tied to, uh, to, to Zionism. And, uh, I think that's, you know, I, I think that the, that the left and the, the progressive left has managed to, you know, conflate those issues as, uh, uh, as, or, sorry, I, I should say differentiate between those issues. Uh, and I can't feel, I can't help to feel that, uh, my Judaism intrins- intrinsically linked to, uh, to Zionism, but in terms of, you know, why this has happened, um, and the, the, what we've seen on for years ago, 15 years ago on campus has entered the mainstream as the conversation. Why this has happened, uh, is because we, we didn't pay attention, and we didn't pay attention for uh, for too long. And I think that our, you know, our, our education system uh, and the what we what we put into Hasbara and Israel advocacy, I think that you have uh, Jews that were co-opted by the other side and can't stand up for the things that they believe in because they are not educated on the facts. Uh, and the issues. So, you know, I, I can't, again, I can't help to agree with, uh, with, with, with the essay. Uh, you know, I think some of, I, I wouldn't use the, uh, I wouldn't use the same words because as, uh, as somebody who, who finds, who finds themselves sometimes on the outside of, uh, of, of the Orthodox, uh, community, but still very strong in terms of my Jewish identity, um, you know, I'd, I'd hate to make that separation between, you know, who's Jewish enough and who's yeah, not. Exactly. Uh, but that, but, but the idea that, uh, that per, the progressives have been co-opted by the left uh, to make the distinction between Zionism and anti-Semitism, I think is a very serious issue that we have, we have lost the fight on. Yeah, so, I mean, we've gone over this multiple times in past episodes. I, I mean... It's, it's, it's good to hear that at the very least you guys really r- recognize that this term un-Jews is really like, it's bordering on offensive. Yeah, for right? sure. It, it's cutting people out. I, I was like, how could you say that? And then I started looking at the argument. So right on its face, I had an issue with the term the un-Jews. Um, and I really respect Gil. He is a wonderful scholar. He, he, he really is. I, I, I know him. I've met him. I know him. I've met him a handful of times. He's now living in Israel, so it's hard to, you know, connect with him um and he 
in Natan Sharansky is Natan Sharansky. I mean, it's a titan. But I started looking at these arguments and I ha- I started finding a lot of flaws within the article itself. Like the idea that, you know, nationalism, right? We're equating this sense of nationalism, right, with uh, this modern form of Judaism, that this is what has become Judaism in the modern era. Nationalisms at all, forget about Jewish nationalism, all nationalisms are not more than 200 years old. So does that mean that for 3,000 years or 2,000 years before that, and since the destruction of the temple where we have Jews as opposed to Israelites, are are we going to go and say that, you know, that the hope of Israel was there, but there wasn't really nationalism and there wasn't really a Zionism to to understand or to really think of that we're not going to call these people Jews. We're going to call these people un-Jews because 15th century Jews were not nationalists. They were not Zionist in that same way, right? It's really difficult for me to go and say that, like, we're going to take this thing, which is a modern construct, this idea of nationalism, and turn turn it into the central point of Judaism when there's so much other things that belong to Judaism. And I'm not saying that Jews shouldn't be nationalist, but, but there are many Jews, historically, every Jew up until, you know, 200 years ago was not nationalist, was not Zionist, right? So to go and say that that is un-Jewish, that this becomes, that this is so important, it becomes the central feature, so right away I had an issue with that. I, saw, I thought that the examples that they were giving were really, really hand, like, cherry-picked. They, they're going on about how the Jews that were progressive back in the Roman era and that were picking universal values are all, you know, that they, they ended up on the wrong side of history. What about, you know, the golden age of, of, of Muslim Spain when Jews were really involved uh, in, in universal values like philosophy and science and poetry, and they were very well recognized, they were integrated, and we championed these people, and they didn't come on the, the wrong side of it because of, you know, the Muslims changing their minds on the Jews. It was the Christians that were taking over the Muslims at the time, right? Jews in the golden age of, of, of Muslim, of the, the golden age of, of Islam, were, were on that side of universalism, and we championed them. We think that it's wonderful. So to go and use that is just, a, to me, counterexample number one, and that's just one example that I came up with. There's so many other things that these that the that they're equating, and then on top of that, right? They go and I mean the line that they say, right? The the, the core line, and I'll read it. Right? We call these critics un-Jews because they believe the only way to fulfill the Jewish mission of saving the world with Jewish values is to undo the ways most actual Jews do Jewishness, right? And and by that they mean by being Zionist. And there are many many non-Zionist Jews that we are not aware of, right? Orthodox Jews, by and large right, are not Zionist, right? If you are a Haredi Jew, and we're not talking about Naturi Karta here, if you are a Haredi Jew, if you are a Chabad Jew, you are not a Zionist. There is a lot of anti-Zionist language in the vast majority of Orthodox discourse, ultra-Orthodox discourse. We don't cut these people out. We champion them. We're like, wonderful, look at the Hasidim, look at Chabad, we love Chabad, it's a part of the world. They're anti-Zionist at their core in terms of their, like, their deep philosophy. They don't talk about it, but that's what they are. Are we cutting those people out also? I think it's, it's a lot more nuanced than that because I think we have to go back to the term Zionism. And we talked about this in our episode with um, Nikki Nashin and the other um, Concordia rep that the actual definition of Zionism is us kind of having a safe place in our homeland and the idea of Tzion is where it comes from. So I, I think there's more to be said, like even with ultra-Orthodox Jews, they're not 
from my understanding, against the concept of us eventually returning to the land. They just um, are, want, are waiting for not, Ma- Mashiach, the Messiah, to come. So it's not th- like... That to them is not... Zionism is our... is the idea that we have the strength and the ability to, to use our political might to, to return to the land. And they say no, it's only the Messiah. I don't know if that's the definition. Maybe some people see it that way, but I think that's the problem. Um, the definition has become something else over the last few decades um because of the political atmosphere look i i um you know I, i've got to disagree with you uh with you here and i i've often made the argument that our you know that our history is 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 certainly you know more than uh you know longer than the state of israel has has existed but the the construct of having somewhere to go in the current context uh is a big part of our jewish identity because when there is sure, nowhere not answering, to go. But you're not answering the question here. So first of all, what do we do with the fact that nationalism is only 200 years old? I don't know if that's true. Of course. Well, since we were exiled, sure, those, the modern, those are two different. The modern yeah, concept of nationalism, people, right, our as whole a, as purpose a philo- is to return to the land of Zion. And I think that there's something to be said about, again, referencing that same episode where, and it says this in the, in the essay too, you can criticize the policies of the Israeli government. You can recognize that there is fault but still be a Zionist because it's a Jewish that that's kind of the whole point of our existence is to return to our homeland. It's in the Torah everywhere. I think uh, you're talking about the, you know, the statecraft and the strategy of the modern iteration of, uh, of Zion. I'm just referring back to the article. That's what Gil and Natan are talking about. And I think the, you know, the idea of, uh, of of Jewish nationalism is far 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 older than uh, than two hundred years and and you know I'm not going to tell the rabbi that but uh, I, I will recognize that we always talk about going back to Israel but as a as a scholar as a wannabe scholar I'm not even going to call myself a scholar but as somebody who has read right I will be the first one to go and say that I don't think that people really knew what that meant to, they, to say that we're going back to Zion, that we're going back to, to Jerusalem, we're going back to Israel. I don't think people that were saying that ever thought that in their lifetimes or in many other lifetimes, with the exception of the Messiah arriving, that we were going to go and take this land and make it our own again and have our own self-determination without the Messiah there. And that is what a lot of people see is what Zionism is, is to say, let's do it. Let's take this. We are a nation. And a lot of Jews did not necessarily see themselves as a nation because they saw themselves as scattered. There were Jews in Iran and Iraq, and there were Jews in Indi- in Italy, and there were Jews in India, and there were Jews all over. And that does not necessarily fit into this idea of what a nation is until about 200 years ago when you have this idea where religions can start becoming nations in their own right. I think you're, I think you're applying a, a construct that really only exists, uh, you know, sort of in the, in the mid-60s hundreds to to how we we talk about states and how we talk about yeah. statecraft uh yeah. but but at the but that that means you're erasing history i think before that in terms of uh in terms of everybody uh having some kind of history before we 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 drew the lines on a on a map and we had governments and multilateral organizations decide who's who in the zoo uh, it goes well beyond that. We were always, uh, uh, I think, a, you know, in some wor- in some way, a, a Zionist, uh, a Zionist people that searched for uh, for nationhood. It's just that it became the modern iteration, you know, as you say, uh, not so long ago. Uh, 
I'm just stuck on the article itself and saying that he's using the language of this modern nationalism and statecraft, right, to fulfill his argument. And he's basically saying that if you don't fit into this model of what we believe is modern Zionism, right, then then you're an un-Jew. And there are many Jews that are then un-Jews that we don't count. Like I said, there are many people that we see to all the time. He is essentially saying that Chabad Jews are un-Jews because they do not believe in, his, in, the, in the Zionism that he is preaching in this article, that they are preaching in this article. And that to me sure. would all of a sudden, it would open people's eyes and like, wait a second, you're not a Zionist like this? You don't believe in the Zionism that I believe in? And there's a lot more Jews than you think. And he's cutting out a significant amount of the Jewish community by doing that. Alana. Sure. No, no. And, and I think that's the one one point that I agree with you on is that I don't like the terminology and I think it does erase uh, parts of our our nation. I don't know. I don't know if you'd like me using that word right now, but we are a nation. And I think that is what separates um, the Jewish people from other groups. We are an ethno religion. And that's something that's heavily debated by outside people. And I think the more that we try to assimilate, the more that we lose that. And a perfect example, it's funny that you pulled up that quote um, because I had a thought on that quote as well, cutting out an essential part of contemporary Jewish identity in order to join the movement of the moment, rebuilding humanity on more equitable and just foundations. So that was a quote close to the one that you said. And the thought that I had was last year, and I might have mentioned this on a previous episode, so I apologize if I'm being redundant, but I got into uh, an argument, a very, very intense argument with someone, a Jewish person online um, around anti-Semitism that started turning into a conversation or like a debate around Zionism and anti-Zionism. And to be honest, by the end of that conversation, I was like, can I even trust my fellow Jews? Like I was already feeling so scared about the rest of the world. And I think that there is something to be said about when, when it's within the community and there are people who are trying to kind of distance themselves from like our original, um, nationhood, for lack of a better term, that it does become a little bit terrifying because what happens if something terrible happens again, that's, you know, God forbid something as bad as, you know, uh, another giant Holocaust or something like what those people are not going to be protected. And I think at the end of the day, and I'm sorry to go down this dark rabbit hole, but Hitler did not go up to Jews and ask them, you know, what, what do you believe? Are you religious? Are you, uh, do you believe that Jews belong in their homeland? That, that wasn't a question. So we do need to stick together to some degree, even if we don't all agree, you know? Yeah, so what you're saying is we shouldn't be asking people, are you a Zionist? Are you no, a Zionist? I, I don't, I, I have no problem with people having different opinions, but I do, I, I do think that there's something... Giltroy apparently does have a problem with Sure. That. I wouldn't go. Well, you know, I'm gonna, I'm go gonna, ahead. I'm gonna uh, jump in here and uh, and end on this. The the threat to, uh, I think, to the Jewish community and the rise in anti-Semitism all around the world, not just right here in Canada, uh, presents a a a a very uh, a very real one, and in the sense that this time is different, uh, and we've got to take matters into our own hands. And if we're fighting those in our own community about what it means to be a Jew in this country and against anti-Semitism, then we've got a bigger problem that we need to fix. And I think that that is, 
you know, that is 10 or 15 years of our community trying to go along to get along. Uh, and that's, you know, that hasn't worked for us. And that's why we're having this conversation because of progressive Jews or the quote unquote progressive Jews who are questioning, uh, you know, who are questioning statehood and part of, uh, you know, intrinsically my Jewish identity, then we have a much bigger problem than we ever thought we did. So you know what, you know what the action point is? You were talking about that there's no action point in here. To me, the action point based on exactly on what you're saying is we have to have dialogue with the totally. Jews that we don't agree with about Zionism, about how to broaden the definition of Zionism to include people that otherwise are being said you're an anti-Zionist because you're not exactly my form of Zionism. We, we really need to redefine what it means because there's a lot of people that say I'm a Zionist, but I think that the Palestinians have a point here or that they, have, they deserve to, to be treated certain ways. And those people are being cut out as being non, as being un-Jews and being anti-Zionist because they don't fit into this very specific model. So I think as long as we're broadening and having this dialogue to start thinking about what it means to be a Zionist, that's an action point for me. Well, that, that broadening absolutely can't start uh, at the point where you have progressive uh, Jews calling Israel an apartheid state. It has to stop it has to start sure. at a place where you can have a conversation. You just like in, you know, just like on the other side of the world, in order to have peace, you need a partner for peace. And 100%. I think that there are many in the progressive left that are not partners. There are many in, in the progressive right that are that are dictating what that means, and we have to like we have to look at the broad middle of that bell curve and say let's all sit down and talk and let's cut out the extremes on both sides and say that's not acceptable and that's not acceptable and and let's let's sit down and and, and figure out what this means june 24th marks saint jean baptiste in quebec or as it has become known in recent years as la fête nationale the national holiday it has become a day to celebrate french canadian heritage culture and nationalism Jews have long been part of Quebec society and with us to discuss this rich history and the relationship between Quebec Jewry and Quebec nationalism is Pierre Anctil. Pierre is a professor of history at the University of Ottawa and is one of the foremost experts of the history of Jews in Montreal in Quebec, of course, right behind, you know, my father. Uh, Pierre, <laughs> welcome. Thank you, Ali. Can you tell us... Uh, can you start by telling us a bit about the Jewish community in Quebec before and during the Quiet Revolution, what their relationship was to the Quebec establishment at the time? Well, it, it, you have to remember that the Quiet Revolution is basically 60 years ago. At the time, the Sephardim had not been established. They had not arrived or been established in Montreal. So uh, most of the Jews in the uh, early 1960s were Ashkenazim from Eastern Europe who had transferred to English. That first generation of Anglophone mother tongue Jews in Montreal appeared in the 60s. And um, it was a difficult relationship, not so much because of tension or disagreements, but for lack of contact. You know, you have a neighbor and you don't know him. You don't meet him often. You don't speak his language. You don't pray with him. And um, in Montreal was very compartmentalized. So um, that was the problem, essentially, is um, what Jews and French Canadians were looking for ways to speak to each other. And they began to do so in the early 60s. What was the relationship like 
in that in that time was it cordial i know that there was always tension between the the the, the quebec uh, you know the, the the quebecois and the anglophones were the jews perceived as anglophone or were they really another were they as i like to say a third solitude well the background of course was the tension real tension or disagreements or um um, I would say even further political wrangling uh, over who would control Montreal uh, between Anglo-British and Franco-Catholic. So Jews were caught in between. Um, they were not more than 6% of the population at the time of Montreal. So the basis uh, was actually too small demographically to, to enter and modify the perceptions of the two dominant groups. Um, so um, the relations, it's very interesting. Um, it has changed a great deal also. The relations between Jews and French Canadians at the basic level was good. They would meet in stores, they would work together, they would meet in parks, because most of the Jews were leaving at the time Plateau Mont-Royal, moving west. And um, it's, it's the elite the, the more uh, established, uh, Catholic-leaning, um, often conservative um, intellectuals who, who found it difficult to come to terms with Jews, not because they were Anglophones, but because they were not Christians. So that's a big difference between, you know, having a relationship with Anglo-British people who were Christians and who were dominant politically and having relations with Jews that... Uh, you had much less in common with at the time. You were quite active in the Dialogue Saint-Urbain, a nation that promoted better understanding between the Jewish community and the Francophone community in Quebec. So what, what work do you feel still needs to be done to bridge that gap between these two communities for a more peaceful coexistence? Well, much has been accomplished. Uh, first of all, the, the Jewish community has become bilingual. You know, the solution was, you know, Jews realized at one point that they had to come to terms with Quebec society in Montreal for all kinds of reasons. And um, so they added French to the already existing um, Anglophone structures. They welcomed the Sephardim, who were also uh, interested in having services in French within the Jewish community, and that, that made a huge difference. So I think today, people in the uh, younger generations are fluently bilingual. There's very few exceptions. There's always exceptions. But, and among Francophones also, uh, there's a much greater uh, proportion of people who speak English. So that that's, there's more comfort. And then the, um, I think the, the source of tension uh, was the sovereignist movement. Um, Jews did not understand really where that was going, and they feared that they would be second-class citizens or not offered the same um, advantages or the same rights or the equal treatment. And, and that has receded on the horizon much after the second referendum, which um, took place in 1995. It's no longer an issue that is, you know, immediate. I'm not saying it's gone, but it's not going to be, there won't be another referendum, and the next election will not be about sovereignty. Not saying Quebec has ceased to be a, a place which is, you know, different, as, as we can easily understand when, when watching the debates in Ottawa today, 
but it's not a, you know, it's not a head-on collision anymore. So that has made a difference as well. Professor, I, I want to ask you, um, because as somebody from who is outside of Quebec, who has never lived in Quebec, who is, uh, who is a, a Jew from Toronto, you talk about the history of, uh, of the Jewish community integrating into Quebec. And from outside, from the outside vantage point, I don't see that. Every t- everything that I read suggests that there is uh, that there is heads butting between you know the Ju- the Jewish community you know on questions of of religious symbolism and and all of those things. So you know, take off the historian hat and and tell me that I'm wrong uh, in terms yes. of what I'm seeing from the outside yes. here. Yes, you are wrong because I, I'm not saying this to displease you or to be offensive, but. I live in French. I see this place in French, um, and I live. I can live in English as well, as you can hear now. And when I read the French press, or I, I'm at UCAM today, you know, the French-speaking university, I, I don't see what you're describing uh, at all. Um, you know, when Avi and I meet, we speak French. Fluently. Well, we speak Yiddish, actually. Yeah, that's true. I wasn't going to go into this. Uh, but um, there's no, we don't even think about it. And it's it's natural. So often what happens from, seen from Toronto, first of all, is that there's a lingering, uh, I would say, uh, perception, negative perception that uh, Jews have picked up. Uh, um, is, is is the origins of this is in the Anglo-British perception of French Canada, and you don't read the French press, you don't read what's going on in French. So um, I think in the last, I think Avi would agree. In the last twenty years, uh, there's there's been quite a bit of progress, mind you. Um, the um, again that you have to read more in French. Uh, um, the community that raises the most concerns is no longer the Jews. It's the Muslims. If you read Le Journal de Montréal, you will see that there's this suspicion. What we, we witnessed 50 years ago uh, vis-à-vis the Jews is now vis-à-vis the Muslims. And uh, the frequent blurbs or attacks or all kinds of uh, insinuations against uh, Muslims, Arabs, Muslims, in Montreal, um, and not against Jews at the moment. Uh, the, the only situation which is raised, and that's worldwide, uh, of course, concerns is um, the recent Gaza attacks in Israel. But that's universal. You know, it's not just here in Canada. So I would say that you have to really plunge into the French world to get a sense of uh, that changing um, pace. I want to focus on that a second, or actually bring out a little wider lens, um, because it's fascinating to me that the Jews could have latched on, or the, 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 there could have been a moment, right, 60 years ago, as we said, in the early days, when there was this recognition for sovereignty as being akin to being what, the, and Zionism was at its peak at the time, right, there could have been a close association and say, we are in this at the same way, we are looking for different lands, but we are, we are in this sort of fight together. And that didn't happen. And I feel like what ended up happening is that the 
Quebecois sovereignists then ultimately saw the Jews, not or the Zionists, not as the uh, the people looking for their own land, but the Palestinians, the underdogs within that fight at the time, and they started associating the same way that the Quebecois associate with the Basque and other you know minority uh, Catalan, the the whatever the those sovereignist movements, right? They ended up fixating on the Palestinians, and we there was a moment that was really missed in terms of rapprochement with the Jewish and the Quebecois communities because it was no thought to say we're we do the same thing we're just looking and it's the same blue and white flag just you know different configurations yeah, yeah. And, and and the quebec flag is 1948 yes so so c- can you comment on that a bit you know think about the 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 the, t- the two types of nationalisms that are going on here yeah well it's very complex i um i see um you know a, a dual approach in the jewish community in montreal um, often, at least for a while, you know, we go back at least to World War II. Um, in Canada, the Jews will defend Canadian unity um, because they're concerned that uh, in a Quebec sovereign country, uh, maybe their rights will not be respected as strongly, although that I doubt that kind of... Um, Inquietude, wariness is is valid, but uh, you know you you can raise it. It's um, so they they will tend to take the sides of federalism in Canada and not Quebec. I'm not saying everyone. I'm not saying that's been the general trend. When it comes to Israel, which is uh, itself uh, a form of nationalism, of course, um, then they switch. They go from being Federalists in Canada to being Zionists in the Middle East. Um, Marceau has made that comment, uh, and René Lévesque, by the way, did also. Uh, René Lévesque spoke to Jewish audiences, um, both during the referendums and before, and um, he said, uh, what we have in mind is what Israel has done. It didn't register at the time. We're speaking of the 70s and 80s. He didn't say this to non-Jewish audiences. But he said it to Jewish audiences. We have, you know, accounts of this being said in synagogues. It's written. Um, so there's, there's basically this complexity that uh, when Jews are in Canada, they, they will side with federalism, uh, even Quebec Jews. And uh, you can see it with the current debates on uh, the recent Law 96, which the CAC has introduced regarding, you know, the... Uh, refranchisation of, of certain elements. It's, it's, it's not to be discussed here. Um, and um, so we, we don't come to terms on this easily, as perhaps we should. Um, and uh, it's not easy to introduce the issue of Palestine and Israel in the debate on Quebec-Canada. And uh, there's a huge difference uh, in the uh, history of Jews in Europe and what it produced. It produced Zionism and then the Holocaust and, and the violent situation in the Middle East and the situation of French Canadians, which is not the same at all. And it's very difficult to make the point today that French Canadians are alienated, oppressed, uh, second-class citizens. It, it no longer appears to be a valid argument as it was during the Quiet Revolution. For sure. 
I'm curious, taking it back a few steps, you mentioned that the main distinction between the two communities was language. But if you look at something like Bill 21, the secularism bill, um, I think that might have alienated a, a lot of practicing Jewish people. So based on your extensive research on the Jewish community in Quebec, what do you believe the future of Quebec Jewry looks like based on these types of bills and these types of laws? Because as you said, you know, in the 70s and 80s, a lot of people did go away because they were worried about being treated differently. And now this is a whole other level. Well, they did go away because also Toronto was becoming more dynamic economically than Quebec. And that's often forgotten in the equation. I think most Jews who left for Toronto were actually looking for better opportunities and better jobs, simply, and they did like other Anglophones. Uh, well, I, I'm going to break in a second to sidebar on that. Do you really think that had there not been Bill 101, for example, you wouldn't have this mass exodus down the 401? The uh, exodus took you, you, that, that would have happened anyway? Sorry, that that's what you're saying? It took place earlier. It took place, yeah, but the, the 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 it was in the air. I mean, that was. But the clear, there's clear signs in the fifties and sixties that Toronto was gaining ground and was taking over, uh, and becoming the center of of the economy in Canada. And uh, what the PQ did afterwards was simply conform and confirm it. I think Jews could could adapt, and they did, and those who remained did adapt well. Uh, and, and Bill 101 was not an anti-Jewish law. It was a law which... No, but it was going to make things difficult for, you know, if you already have a two-language school to have a three-language school, but which, like yeah. you said, we've adapted. My my daughter, who is American, um, was French valedictorian. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back week, to the know? question by Ilana. Um, yes, uh, basically... Um, I think uh, the future is uh, that I think the large part, the most difficult part, is is done. Uh, the most complex period and tense was during the Quiet Revolution of the 60s, and especially during the uh, period when the PQ took over in 76, moved in a language law. Uh, by the way, the federal government also moved in language laws and are still discussing language laws. So it's nothing exceptional. And um, when when there was uncertainty as to where this was all going, now we, we're in 2021 and we have an ability to look back and say, well, in the last 20 or 30 years, um, the situation has not worsened. I would say it has improved. Um, quite interestingly, and I'd say, uh, it as I don't know if you'll agree with me, but um, the situation of the last 20 years or 30 years has produced a new identity for Montreal Jews, different from the identity of Toronto Jews or New York Jews. First of all, because if you live in Montreal, you're going to be bilingual. It, it seems to be a natural reaction. It's not necessarily a legal uh, impediment forcing you to do it and you're going to resonate differently um, maybe Avi will be sensitive to this but when you look at figures Alana grew, Alana grew up in Montreal yeah I can be like the poster child for this because I'm in my late 20s so I, I lived out the last uh, <laughs> number of years in Montreal I no longer live in in Quebec um, but I did grow up there and I, I've only been in BC for the last five years of my life okay. Yeah. But if you look at figures for religious observance, 
uh, for you know synagogue attendance and for uh, you know enrolling your children in Jewish schools where they get Jewish education. Montreal has the highest percentage in North America, ahead of Toronto, and way ahead of American numbers. Well, that's because the Quebec government does subsidize. Uh, a lot of the day school. <laughs> in part, but it's also because being in a dual environment, French and English, leaves more room for Jews to maneuver on their own ground. As in Toronto, and especially in the U.S., it's more difficult to define Jewishness outside of the mainstream. Here, there's, quite frankly, there's no majority in Montreal. Uh, each group, French and English, has its own sphere, its own interest, its own power base, and other groups are connected to this in different ways. But it's um, it's possible. I think it's easier to forge a third avenue and be Jewish in that environment. That I think the figures tend to prove it. Um, and um, so, so the future is that is is I don't think Jews are any longer the object of systematic obsessive attention on the part of French Canadians, as was the case in the 30s and 40s. They're no longer uh, shut out from the mainstream French world, and they are no longer confronted with, issue, with, with issues that are very uh, demanding, such as, uh, you know, Declaration of Independence the next day. Uh, we still have a lot to do. I, I reject entirely Law 21 personally. I don't. I think it's a breach of, of uh, basic rights, and it's going to go to court, and we'll see what does it does. But uh, but it hasn't. I don't think it has affected the Jewish community immediately and directly. Probably because a lot of these Jewish schools don't have the rule applying to them, right? Well, look. I, I suspect I suspect that the reason why Jews aren't fighting more forcefully or th- as a large community is because many Jews don't think that the law applies to them, that they're they're escaping from it. They're not many Jewish public servants, not many Jewish exactly. police officers, not, ma- not many uh, Jews in the public school system who are covering their hair. And they're like, you know what, we're going to skate on this one. We're just going to let it slide and we're going to be quiet and not get in the way of, you know, something which, you know, I that's what I suspect. I, I- I've, I've written an op-ed uh, in Le Devoir arguing that the measure was designed for Muslim women specifically. And uh, for that reason, I don't see that it affects the Jewish community very seriously, but it does affect the Muslim community much more. And that's unjust and unfair completely. And it goes back to what I said. The uh, focus now is on Muslims. So I do think that you're right in the uh, in the sense that uh, we uh, we are carving out and we have this identity as Montreal Jews that is unique and I I champion it and I think it's wonderful. I do think, based as an extension of what you're saying, that one of the biggest mistakes that the Jewish community made was this fear right in the late 70s, early 80s, that led to this mass exodus. Because for a lot of people, you write that there was a, I, 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 there was that opportunities that were happening in Toronto. But I do think that, you know, our loss ends up being Melissa's gain. You have a wonderful, huge Jewish community. And that community would have learned to adapt um, in Montreal. And they would have kept the community strong and richer. Um, and we would not have these, you know, questions over, you know, our demographics and our shrinking demographics on a regular basis, if not for that mass exodus during that short period of time when, you know, this was becoming a real thing. Well, there's also uh, the issue that uh, 
I think the evolution is easier to predict for the next 20 years than it was during the 70s. Um, Quebec has become much more diverse in French, which is another factor. In the 60s, Quebec was not diverse in French. It was diverse in English only. Now, I, you know, with well, Bill 101, uh, the children of immigrants must go to French language schools, and that has transformed Quebec society enormously. And that benefited Jews as well, because, you know, in the 30s, it was, it was French Canadians, English Canadians, and Jews, period. Then were added Italians and Greeks during the referendum. But today we're, we're looking at a myriad of different communities, different colors, different origins, different religion, all in French. And so we won't go back to that period when Jews were singled out as the source of diversity and the source of problems. I don't think so. Well, that that's let's be honest. That was as far as as recent as 1995, right? Uh, the 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 most famous comment uh, tomorrow, Saint Jean Baptiste. I'm going to be out wearing my T-shirt saying uh, "Ethnic without money." Oh, yeah. Here, you know, that's me, right? Um, Jacques Parizeau was and calls the Jews. He doesn't call them up by name. It says the ethnics with money, but that's what we were. We were the ethnics that were moneyed. But uh, but I think you are right that it, that we are. You know that that is moving away, and that the diversity in the French community is is getting huge. Um, one last question. Uh, just to wrap it up, I, I'm, I'm always uh, amazed by the fact, um, not because like it was so weird to think about and so wrong, but because Jews were always on the federalism side, um, tended to be seen as that. But there were always Jews in the oh, separatist movement, in the sovereigntist sides. Who were some of, just point out quickly, some of the notable ones and, you know, what was their approach to saying, I'm Jewish, but I, uh, I believe in this cause? Well, um, um I forget the first name, but Levine, as recently uh, as, uh, you know, he, uh, when Legault was a Pekist, so it's 20 years ago, uh, was, was uh, named Minister uh, of, of Health under Legault. Uh, this was, uh, I think it was, um, um, I think it was early 200, 2002. And uh, he wasn't elected, and he resigned. And uh, there are other famous names. Uh, Salomon Cohen ran for the PQ. And, and I'm not saying a fair share of Jews vote for the PQ, but besides, it's, 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 it's pointless. The vote belongs to individuals. It doesn't belong to communities or groups. or uh, you know. So we each vote according to our conscience. Uh, and, and I think we have to, to, to acknowledge that it's... Yes, Jews tend to be more uh, federalist or vote more liberal, um, but um, it's it's not something that we have to discuss. Uh, you know, the the result uh, the the result are not calculated according to who votes for which community, but for for parties and and number of seats. That's all. Yes. Are there going to be? This is a totally out of left field. Are you working on any new uh, translations from Yiddish into uh, of the arts world that we can work on? For those of you who don't know, Pierre actually translated some of the most famous works of uh, Michel Tremblay for the stage uh, into Yiddish for the Yiddish Theater in Montreal. Um, what's on the horizon for the uh, Yiddish Quebecois intersection? I'm exploring the editorials of the Canada Radla, the Yiddish newspaper for the 30s. You know, there was a daily, and so each day the Canada Radla had two or three editorials. So I'm exploring those who are written about French Canada. And uh, I made very interesting discoveries. Uh, first of all, that uh, the uh, uh, main 
publisher, main writer, uh, uh, we, we think it's, it was Israel Rabinovich, uh, read French fluently. And uh, he translated from French to Yiddish certain passages in Le Devant editorials. And he took the side of French Canadians against uh, Orangists and against uh, Anglo-British people who uh, were not willing to allow uh, French education in Ontario or the other places in the country. So there was a great deal of dialogue and thinking about the relationship, but, as you know, Avi, in Yiddish. So what are we going to do with this today unless we translate it? And even at the time, you know, what French Canadian could read Yiddish? So it's, it's a multi-layered, multi language community and it's it takes time to decipher all the various elements and factions and um, potential potentialities we we should do more to learn each other's history um, in 2017 i published histoire des juifs du quebec in french so it's like yiddish for the toronto jews but it's coming out in english this fall History of the Jews in Quebec. So I, I hope that we we can discuss more our common history and prospects and possibilities. And I think Avi, you'll agree with me that um, there's a lot to be shared as as groups that uh, are in the minority, uh, French Canadians in Canada or the continent, and Jews um, in the diaspora. And there's a lot in terms of, as Les Belsars in Yiddish showed, there's a lot in terms of emotion and in terms of um, sharing a difficult history. Pierre, you'll, you'll be happy to know that this Jew from Toronto is a fluent French speaker. Non, merveilleux. Je suis très content d'apprendre ça. Tu vois, ça serait jamais arrivé à la génération précédente. Would your parents have learned uh, fluent French? No, they, they were smart enough to put me in French school here. Ah. She's only learned it so that she could become a federal candidate for gov for government, which ah. she will be was, an MP. It was an early enough. start for me. No, but that's a new phenomenon, you know, um, and and it's required that we we know each other's language language is so important for french canadians and quebecois and uh we um and we think that um, human rights legislation is also important for jews so uh, and french canadians we have a lot in common we can learn uh, about uh the position that we we held each vis-a-vis -vis the other in history and in yeah. the future I think that would be amazing for, for more French Canadians to learn more about the Jewish history in Quebec, because I think yeah. that's the part that becomes unbalanced. Having been through the system, we learn so much about the French Canadian side, um, and you don't see as much of that yeah. in the curriculum. But then again, if you look at the famous foods of Montreal, it's Jewish and French Canadian, poutine, bagels, lox, and smoked meat. Look, I spent my childhood going to a Steinberg every week to buy food in Quebec City. It, it, you know, Absolutely. everyone knew who that Steinberg wasn't a French Canadian. Yeah. Well, Pierre, thank you so much. Uh, when the book comes out in English, we should have you on again to talk more about these issues and questions. Uh, it would be an honor to have you again. Thank you so much for taking your time. Uh, have you translated Jean Dupay back into y into Yiddish yet? Can you sing us out with a couple of bars? No, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> If you want to, we can do that. We'll make it work. Thank you so much, and we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Let's move on to our Nachas of the Week, where we'd like to highlight something which has come across our radar and given us some Nachas as Jewish Canadians. Melissa, what's your Nachas of the Week? Okay, you, if you're in Toronto, you might have seen this. It has just started, uh, and I haven't seen this kind of advocacy uh, in, a, in a long time from any, uh, you know, any members of, uh, of the community, but we've got an ad campaign um, right now uh, at uh, 80 or 90 uh places around uh, around the cities on like bus shelters and things like that and it's called the no hate against uh jews campaign and it is a small group of uh of of grassroots uh uh members of a of a newly found group that have just said enough is enough we're going to take matters into our own hands and we're going to put out this campaign and there isn't a bunch of different logos on the bottom there's just a a, a bunch of people that want to raise uh, awareness uh, about the the rise in anti-Semitism uh, to be paid attention to, and I I, I I can't help to you know to shep nachas for them. That is nachas. Alana, what's your nachas? I made a rainbow challah uh, for Pride, and it was pretty <laughs> awesome. So we had uh, an event through Moisha House that was facilitated by a Toronto Jew. Um, you can follow her on Instagram at All My Bread Friends. Her name is Pearl, and she taught us how to individually dye each strand. And it was it was six braided. It was hard. Um, and put it all together. And then I learned that some people make all these crazy types of challahs, like ones where you can fill it with like s'mores, like chocolate and marshmallow. Or she was like, you, if, if you're having a dairy Shabbat, you could fill it with cheese. I was like, whoa, my mind is blown. So you can check out uh, all of her baking on her Instagram. I had a friend that every year used to do this uh, dinner called Fleischfest, where uh, every me- every item on the menu had to have meat in it, um, right? The side dishes, the everything that does des- everything, minced meat pies for dessert. Give this guy an order of Canada. Uh, yeah, I should. <laughs> um, and so the challah always was like instead of a raisin challah, it was studded with like chunks of salami. Interesting. So uh, yeah, shout out to to Jeremy and his Fleischfest every year. Um, my Nachas has been a very beautiful one. Over the past three weeks, I have been a coach uh, for this amazing program uh, run by the JFNA, the Jewish Federations of North America, called the Changemakers. I don't know if you've seen ads for it or been around. It's basically for people in the 19 to 25 uh, age bracket, roughly people that are uh, self-identified as future change makers in the community. Uh, I've been a coach for the Canadian cohort. Now, of course, the Canadian cohort does not include any of the Torontonians. They have their own cohort. So... They have like 20 and we got like six Canadians from the rest of Canada. Um, it has been an amazing experience being a part of their lives and being part of their journey as they think about what it means to be a change maker. So to the rest of Canada, change makers, right? Leora, Nathan, Jordan, Yuvi, Brennan, and Rachel, um, I salute you and I salute the change that you will make for the future of the communities. Um, good luck on making change in Canada. Um, and uh, for those of you who want to hear more about it, go look up change makers. There's another July cohort coming up. I think it's too late to sign up for that one, but they're going to be doing more in the future. Change makers, let's make change. For today's rabbinic voice, we go to Rabbi Boris Dolan of Congregation Dorche Amet in Montreal, Quebec. If I was going to name an all-purpose song to open any Shabbat service or program, it would be Matovu. Short and sweet, the words of this song remind us of one of the core reasons we have community. Matovu ohalecha Yaakov, mishkenotecha Yisrael. How good are your tents, your sanctuaries, Israel. Anytime we gather, before we pray, we sing, we discuss, we learn, we argue, 
we first acknowledge the beautiful holy space that we're creating together. And I've always found it interesting that these words, which have become such a core part of our religious lives, those words which bless our community, our Jewish community, were said by Bilam, a non-Jewish magician prophet who sent by Balak, king of Moab, to curse the Israelites. Clearly, his plan doesn't work out as expected. And as he's standing on top of a hill overlooking the Israelite encampment, all he can do is bless. And these words, these words of a non-Jew, they become so important that we find them printed down for eternity in our most Jewish of texts, our Torah and our Siddur, our prayer book. The lesson is clear. Our opening blessing for community, for Jewish community, reminds us that we need each other. We need the community of those close to us, those who share our communal story, our values and our ways of understanding the world. But we also need to step out and gain inspiration from others beyond our inner circle. And I know that in some ways this is a common sense reminder, but it is one that I think more of our leaders and all of us need to hear. The world is much smaller when we shut off our minds from those who are different than us. When we build walls or when we stay too long in our inner circles, we lose sight of the diversity of people, opinions, and ways of being. Without the perspective of difference, we lose the opportunity to see the beauty in others. We lose the vision and the openness. So stepping beyond the walls of the sanctuaries we've built, it can be difficult. To encounter others who are different than us, sometimes it does take real effort. To have a conversation about politics, religion, Israel, values, hockey, it forces us to expand our ideas and our identity in ways that are not always easy. But if we do this with kavanah, with commitment, it makes us and our communities even stronger. But we can do this. We can't solve all of the brokenness in the world just by encountering those who are most different than us. If this pandemic, this strange and challenging year and a half has taught us anything, it can help us understand the ways that we are so deeply connected with each other. So let us continue to strengthen the community we have, but sometimes leave to take the journeys to see and encounter places, ideas, and people are not like us. We can start by opening our eyes to see the beauty of all that we encounter, by doing our best to bless what we share and honoring what makes us different. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for Thursday, June 24th. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice and let us know what you think about our discussions on the CJN Lounge on Facebook. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Melissa Lansman. And I'm Ilana Zakon. <laughs>